Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Let's start on a lighter note. Uh, Putin dies and goes to hell and then he's sent back to Moscow because of his good behavior in hell. He visits a bar and he orders vodka, uh, talks to a bartender and asks him, uh, so how did it go? Is uh, Kiev ours? Yes, it is, confirms the bartender. Is uh, Crimea ours? Yes, it is. Uh, Donbass? Yes, sir. So he drinks up and asks, how much for the vodka? 100 hryvnia. I think the, the, the level uh, of anxiety and nervousness is already uh, high, uh, the high in Central Eastern Europe. So the old Soviet jokes are being remade. Um, there is also a feeling of Russia being a bit stuck. Uh, well, it's stuck for good, hopefully, in their attempt to capture Ukraine. And uh, this nervousness plays out into the popular culture in social media and in people's chatter, uh, trying to cheer up uh, the situation. In the Second World War, the most common joke was about Hitler having one ball, expecting a similar one to fly uh, very soon on uh, about Putin. But in the meantime, uh, we have uh, a meeting uh, between US and China of, of strategic importance taking place on Monday. We're recording that podcast, uh, this podcast on uh, 14th of March 2022, on the day just before uh, Jack Sullivan meets with his counterpart from China to discuss um, and to pressure China uh, on sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Russia has requested that uh, military equipment would be delivered from China. Uh, it's key ally in the global contest between autocracies and democracies. But China has so far um, dodged the request, let's say. It, uh, it did not comply. It did not uh, vocally support Russia. But it did not support also the Ukrainian cause for self-defense and uh, protection of its sovereignty. So the meeting between US and China, uh, one of possibly many to come, uh, is going to be the real uh, strategic game uh, that is happening in the world uh, in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, then the speculations of what will be the outcome, what will be the future of, uh, of this contest, of the uh, global world order, and also what is going to be the future of Europe if of that con uh, in taking into account this context is, is going to be really important. Um, it seems we should talk about it more, It's but it's a weekly outlook uh, review. So in the context of this week, um, we'd like to pay special attention specifically to this, this meeting. Secondly, um, there is also in the context of how to respond to China and Russia, uh, more trouble uh, in Hungarian electoral campaign for, uh, for the government. Um, and we'll talk over about it uh, in a minute uh, from various points of view. But I wanted to highlight uh, this one, which is the, um, a drone, uh, Soviet Times made, that flew over Romania and Hungary for um, more than 20 minutes, I believe, and then crashed into uh, Croatian, uh, the, the city of the capital of Zagreb. Uh, the unmanned drone 
was not the only problem. It had a 120 kilo bomb uh, on board, and uh, fortunately the bomb exploded in a soft ground, uh, thus not uh, making any big damage. But Croats are already furious at Hungarians for uh, missing the drone or not reacting to it uh, accordingly. And that, uh, again, is just an instance of how Hungary responds to the conflict and um, to Russian aggression. Uh, The slogan goes, as uh, expressed by Viktor Orban, uh, the Hungary responds with strategic calmness. Now, if that is strategic calmness uh, from a NATO ally uh, that puts at risk people's lives, also in Hungary, let's see how it will play out. Meanwhile, there are uh, no sanctions on any uh, Russian companies or capital or capital shares being discussed in Poland, the country most vocal on uh, how to sanction uh, Russia on the EU level or portraying from the point of view of the government itself as a as the government that has been always warning people against Russia. The government is shy of uh, listing any company, any meaningful sanctioning action, while countries like Belgium or the UK have been already uh, taking control or sizing important elements of um, the uh, mafia state Russia, Russia has um, abroad, uh, the uh, property owned by different oligarchs or people connected to the to the uh, core power structures of Russia. So in this context, uh, the elections in Hungary seem to be really important. And um, on 15th, so tomorrow from the point of view of today's podcast, we will have a big uh, national uh, day in Hungary. Uh, during which there will be speeches, and one of the speech will be by Donald Tusk, former Prime Minister of um, Poland and uh, former President of the EU, former ally of Viktor Orban that now comes to Budapest to endorse Peter Markizai. I think there's a lot going on this week, even more uh, than we uh, already know from, from the ongoing conflict and negotiations between Um, Ukraine and Russia. But what's more, uh, my name is Wojciech Przybylski, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Visegrad Inside. Miles Maftian and Kamil Jaronczyk are here with me. So Kamil, um, let's uh, give a three-point summary of our weekly outlook that has just been released. Thank you, Wojciech. Um, It's also worth uh, mentioning that while Donald Tusk is many former things, he is the current head of the EPP. Uh, uh, Fidesz's previous faction before they were kicked out. Uh, So it's quite the statement that he's going to be meeting with the Hungarian opposition. Yes, but uh, from the very extensive uh, uh, weekly outlook that we have this week, a lot is happening in the region, as I feel I always say uh, on this podcast. Uh, Something of note that happened uh, in Ukraine near the border with Poland was the International Center for uh, Peacekeeping uh, and Security uh, in uh, Yavoriv, uh, was hit uh, by by, missi- uh, by Russian missiles. Uh, what's of note of them, uh, there have been many casualties. 35 are dead, are reported dead as of the recording, and 134 are reported injured. Uh, what's uh, very important about, um, about this particular strike uh, in Ukraine, which is experiencing many strikes from Russia, is that Yavoriv is uh, located 25 kilometers from the Polish border and 30 kilometers from Lviv. Uh, one of Ukraine's most west, uh, western cities. 
and where a lot of internally displaced people have um, fled to. Uh, this um, uh, there have been reports that the uh, border the border guards on the Polish border could feel um, uh, the ground shaking, and um, this uh, uh, the, the, this uh, increases the risk of airstrikes from Russia on Polish territory, NATO territory, um, uh, as um, as uh, the, uh, the as the Russians have shown uh, in numerous attacks that they sometimes miss the mark quite a, quite a bit with their cruise missiles. So if they're attacking so close to the por- Polish border, who, who knows um, what, what that could uh, mean for Poland. So uh, Yeah, this is no longer a possibility. This is a probability risk. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the missiles and projectiles shot at uh, the direction of the military convoys uh, may pass the Polish border and actually land and crash into... Um, objects in Poland accidentally, but it's also not and uh, not excluded that uh, some of the military installations uh, may be targeted in Poland. If you consider that the critical element of the supply lines to Ukraine is uh, around uh, Rzeszów in in Poland, through exactly through Poland, and then the question of Article Five comes up in NATO: um, what constitutes a strike on NATO territory? Uh, that is uh, worrying developments uh, throughout the region. Yes, it's also been reported by the UN uh, by the UN that 2.7 million refugees, over 2.7 million refugees, have left Ukraine, with the vast majority fleeing to Western neighbors, uh, mo- uh, other than Moldova, European Union members. Uh, the <clears throat> uh, the 1.7 million have gone to Poland, uh, with uh, many countries in the region actually. Uh, Reporting that the, they they are at breaking point, that it's um, too that it's uh, too uh, too many at the moment, and that they are uh, calling for international help uh, from the UN, from the rest of the world, uh, from the rest of the EU. Uh, so um, and also um, speaking of disaster, if uh, if help isn't uh, doesn't come, but uh, east of the Polish border, uh, more to the north in Belarus. Uh, the uh, Radio for Europe has, uh, slash Radio uh, Radio Liberty has done some uh, great uh, reporting along the uh, border uh, with Ukraine, with local residents in Belarus, informing their reporters that the bodies of Russian soldiers killed in battle in Ukraine are filling up the morgues in the country, and it is uh, reported that the morgues in Homel and uh, uh, Narolia are filled up, and they are loaded onto the trains and sent back to Russia. So. Um, even the locals in uh, Belarus are noti- are noticing the build up. So obviously, again, the the big narratives and big strikes uh, that occupy the attention of the mainstream media often overshadow the, the stark reality on the ground. And uh, at some point, people will start noticing. That's uh, that's of a hope. Um, as Russians seem to be now in denial um, about what's going on and what's their responsibility as a nation, uh, so many others are also in the campaign mode uh, and and overlook uh, the, the important details. So we have brought uh, uh, some non-war story uh, in, in the recent uh, week. And I, I think, Miles, you read it through, could tell us more about at the same time, and that we have so much of, of tension and horror happening all around us, there are also important uh, things going on. And uh, to understand them, we need to sometimes dig uh, deeper. And I think we have a great story, again, from Hungary to explain. 
Thank you, Wojciech. So essentially, what we're trying to do at Visegrad Insight is give um, a sort of preview of what's to come in, in the Hungarian elections. So we, we have run um, a conference and we are trying to focus on some, some aspects that are incredibly important for Hungarian society, Hungarian voters. Um, but aren't necessarily covered so much. So we, we had a piece, and in this piece, uh, it, was, it was co-authored by, by Georgi Molnar, Andras Polga, and Peter Felucci. And this was on Hungary's sinister tax system. So uh, essentially what, what the piece offers is it shows how the Hungarian tax system, uh, how it sort of has this overall redistributive effect that actually goes from the poor to the rich. Right. So it's commonly accepted that the, the personal income tax, which, of course, was designed by FIDES, um, favors the rich and, and discriminates the poor. This is something that was accepted by a lot of uh, in academic circles um, and, and only increasingly are the the democratic opposition actually uh, accepting this as well. Right. Even though a lot of people could think that this isn't really a safe, straightforward conclusion in that sense. But. So the piece goes into great detail, but I'll just give a couple of highlights. So when you look at, um, in comparison to all EU member states, Hungary is actually the highest in terms of the ratio of total tax burden relative to the, to the total costs of labor, right? Um, and it's not just about, you know, personal income tax. That's, that's one of several uh, different types of taxes that are paid by individuals. But when you look at um, the amount of value-added tax or VAT uh, levied on consumption, that's almost twice the amount collected by the state as personal income tax, right? So Hungary had the highest VAT in, in the world and the highest payroll tax as a percentage of total employment costs in Europe. So it means that the, this tax burden has, has also basically become more regressive in, in the last 10 years and so forth. And we hear a lot. Um, we hear a lot how the Orban regime upholds and has this emphasis on familial ties and so forth in Hungary. But in the piece, we actually mm, look and we, we ask, does this actually square in terms of uh, the child tax credit? And it's simple. The, the regime is still skewed here toward those with higher income. They receive a highly disproportional um, high share of the, the child tax credit budget. Um, of course, this is, this is just a few of the insights from the piece, um, which we'll link below for, for listeners to, to actually read through the entirety of it. But very important, very timely. Um, and if you want to actually read more on, uh, on Hungary, we have done a summary of the conference on the state of Hungary and actually what will follow from, from our interview as well will be some highlights, some key highlights from this uh, conference on Hungary. Yeah, uh, thank you, Miles. Now am I thinking uh, when we reread and, and, and discussed the piece uh, on tax system, how important it is uh, that the governments recognize and they are linked to the people's interests, to the constituencies, electorates' interests, real interests that are recognized and um, that put pressure on the governments to react. As we have seen in the recent week, 
at least in four countries of Europe, there was a massive surge of support, popular support that pressured Germany, France, Italy, and pressures Poland, frankly, to do more to help Ukraine and to accept more burden and more cost on the society, on the, on the oil prices uh, and gas prices that may follow from sanctioning Russia into submitting, into submission in a way, uh, and accepting that they need to stop uh, the war on Ukraine, which is, of course, at the moment, at the expense, again, of the poorest. But if the poorest do not have the vote, do not have the voice, do not have the means of also to um, uh, to be active citizens, to constitute the upcoming, you know, to hope to become even a middle class, then they're voiceless, they're speechless, and they're all they're fed is with pure propaganda that we observe in Hungary, and same when it comes to Putin's Russia. Um, that's also how important the taxation system and the fairness uh, in building a cohesive society uh, for democratic security is in Central Europe and actually globally, um, you know, we can say that easily. But yes, now let's go on to the um, highlights from uh, the discussions we have had over a week, uh, two weeks ago, still very relevant and very telling about uh, what's at stake with the Hungarian elections now upcoming. It's important to notice that Orban and his rule is based on largely on imaginary enemies, enemies which are not there, like, you know, Brussels or George Soros or, or migrants from Syria. Basically, they were not showing up except in 2015 for a few weeks. And uh, winning these uh, fights against uh, imaginary enemies and the LMBTQ groups, etc. But now the, for the first time, this global pandemic was a real enemy or a real situation which required the real policy change for the regime. And it was very difficult for them to meet the requirements and Hungary Hungarian government performed pretty poorly. And the second reality check, I would say reality check, it is very hard not to speak about Ukraine today, is, is the war, the Russian aggression to Ukraine. And Orban was famous about his uh, peacock dance, you know, that uh, he, he was trying to get close to Brussels to get the money, but to play uh, towards the East, the Eastern dictators, and, you know, behaving uh, according to the, to the, you know, the partners, uh, pr being inside and outside the European Union at the same time. And now he was doing that with Vladimir Putin. He is widely considered that the best friend of Putin within the European Union. And it was a totally total shock for him. I think he was totally unprepared and the regime as well for the Russian invasion, even if he was in Moscow visiting Putin just uh, less than three weeks ago. Viktor Orban's regime is not primarily determined by formal legal norms. I think it's determined by informal practices. And I also have great constitutional scholars 
who would, from the legal side, would argue similarly, like Andras Jakob, for instance. Um, so Viktor Orban is thriving on this informal power, meaning that his government is very often undermining democracy uh, through informal interactions that are legally not codified. And this is how it makes it even more difficult for the EU or any other international observers to detect this. What does it mean in practice? So the decision making is often prevails outside of the formal institutional framework and they involve these close relatives and, and cronies of the prime minister. Just to give you two examples, one of them, for instance, um, very often economic laws that very beneficiary for the regime, they're often being written on CU's private like computers, like very close to Viktor Orban's circles. And this is exactly what happened to the tabac tobacco shop license which was one of the textbook example of systemic corruption involving the close circles of, of Viktor Orban. And what Andras said about the media, I think this is also another good example because how cronies close to the prime minister deliberately donated their assets to the state foundation and how five almost like of more than half 500 media outlets have been concentrated in a state foundation this is another textbooks case of example of informal power. This was not codified. You cannot find any regulation who would say that this was going to happen, and yet that's what happened. So, so that was that was one thing I think that was also indicative of how Viktor Orban's cronies and and family members they successfully captured key economic stake uh, state uh, sectors by 2022. We know that his son-in-law, like what he achieved, and many of his allies have became sole benefit fisheries of state funds and uh, public procurements. And would it have been possible without direct support of the government? Of course not. And on top of that, it's very open, ha often happening in a coercive way. So I think this is one of the scariest thing about among us that 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 private enterprise takeovers also became very frequent in Hungary. Now a uh, modernization program um, uh, is going on which is called the Zrini 2026. Uh, um, the aim uh, of this um, uh, program uh, is to uh, uh, change from a Soviet era uh, armaments and equipment situation to a all Western uh, and Hungarian made um, um, situation. So all our, our armaments and equipment uh, at the end of this uh, program will be made uh, by Western uh, countries, allies, uh, or um, according to Western standards uh, in Hungary. So uh, uh, this Zrini 2026 program started uh, in 2017, and it was supposed to be a 10-year-long uh, plan. Uh, so hence the 2026 uh, date um, at the end of it, uh, but it will be a rolling uh, plan. It's quite visible, quite um, uh, obvious that uh, it cannot be stopped uh, after um, uh, 10 years. It's, a, it's basic, the capability development is a never ending story, um, naturally. Um, the priorities uh, of, uh, of this program are centered around NATO capability development targets. So these are the targets we got from, uh, from NATO uh, you're, uh, in the NATO defense plan planning process. I won't go very deep into it, but the most important priorities 
are a heavy infantry fighting um, uh, brigade uh, and surface-to-air missile uh, air defense. But there are many, many other uh, priorities, but these two are the most costly ones uh, and the most important um, uh, ones. First of all, let me tell you that uh, the, the uh, then current, so the 2021 December uh, threat perception uh, was dominated by climate change by 32.5% um, of respondents, uh, naming it as the number one uh, challenge. 31.7% uh, migration, so this is on uh, second place. The third one, 27.9% on natural gas dependence. And uh, the fourth um, factor was um, economic vulnerability of Hungary, 17.3%. You can see quite clearly that these are not military types of uh, threats. And uh, the conflict in Ukraine, again, it's December 2021, uh, did not make to the top five concerns, uh, with 17% of the respondents identifying this as a major threat. And um, the Middle East and North African conflict going on um, only came in seventh with 16.7%. Um, also, there was one question um, focusing on major concerns for the next 10 years, so mid to long term uh, concerns and challenges. And uh, the migration, uh, another migration wave uh, came in first with 30 uh, second, uh, 30%. And the second was the um, chance of a major cyber attack on Hungary with 25.8% of respondents. Um, a major war among great powers in the next 10 years uh, was identified by 25.7% uh, of the respondents. And it was uh, coming in third place as, as a major concern for the next 10 years. So uh, even in, in December 2021, it was not uh, primarily military threats and defense type of uh, challenges that, for, um, that the Hungarian public was focusing upon. For many years, societies in our region weren't really uh, partaking in defense to this extent. We had professional armed forces that weren't that big, and the rest of the people, you know, had this could live this life of civilians and civilianized citizens. Uh, and it was no longer part of the social contract for citizens to, you know, have to do military service and to potentially um, uh, sacrifice their health or life for the state. Now, all of this has been changing after 2014, the annexation of Crimea and the war in Ukraine, where we see that all across the region, and I'll talk about Hungary in a minute, uh, we see new programs and channels introduced that are trying to rebuild reserves and bring the society closer to defense. And one such aspect, one such um, thing in Hungary is, of course, everything that's happening in the education sector. So military young cadet programs that are growing, they have been there before, but are really growing since 2017, where students go to school, have a normal program, but also wear uniforms and get this other defense military program. Uh, the second aspect is uh, military summer camps for youth. Again, that's also a Hungarian thing, um, which is kind of self-explanatory. Then uh, we have the mainstreaming of like national defense into school educational programs in Hungary, right? So this idea that uh, sports classes, history classes, geography classes all need to be somehow infused with this defense-mindedness. 
uh, and national thinking. And then on top of that, um, I'm not sure where that is by now, but last time I checked, it was still continuing this uh, idea of the urban government to uh, build shooting ranges across the country to kind of rebuild this, um, you know, gun culture, so to say.